Our scripture lesson this morning is taken from the book of Acts. I'll begin with the verse, first verse in chapter 1 and read through chapter 11. Listen, will you, for the word of God as it's proclaimed through these words of the author of Acts. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father, This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. It's the word of God for the people of God. So yesterday I officiated at a memorial service for Wes Kennedy. Wes and Sam have been members of North Haven for almost 15 years. Wes has been mostly homebound by his illness over the last few years. But yesterday was an amazing celebration of an amazing life. The Turtle Creek Chorale sang here in our sanctuary. It was absolutely glorious. And we closed the service with a hymn called A Mighty Fortress, a grand, triumphant hymn with organ and piano and 150 voices, mostly men. It was astonishing. Wes was a miracle. He was just simply a miracle. His childhood was something to be survived. His father was horrible. His mother died by suicide when he was 14 years old. Later, the Baptist church where he worked and the Baptist seminary he attended kicked him out. He had a 50% chance of getting a genetic disease called Huntington's, and he did. The equally dramatic but positive narrative of Wes's life was his unequivocal witness to the grace of God. He worked as an HIV AIDS educator as that plague tore through our city 
in the 80s and 90s. He drove a mobile testing unit to clubs around Dallas to give care to prostitutes. He took three planes, a bus, and a bicycle to get to a small village in Zambia to provide training and support. His legacy was love, love shared with everyone who was privileged to meet him, even for just a short while, love shared unconditionally with some of the most overlooked and vulnerable persons imaginable. He was a witness to the power of God's grace to prevail. So imagine 150 voices, mostly men, singing these words to a mighty fortress. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And though this world should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. For God hath willed God's truth to triumph through us, for us to be witnesses to the truth of God. Wes left a powerful legacy of triumphing over evil and sharing love without condition, a legacy that creates an opportunity for an equally powerful outpouring of love by all who follow after him. The torch has been passed. Our text this morning describes a similar moment. The disciples are watching as the most precious thing in their lives leaves them as Christ is taken up into the clouds in this story that we call the Ascension. The disciples are grieving. They know life will never be the same. They know the torch has been passed to them. I call this the time of the semicolon. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the main purpose of a semicolon is to mark a break that is stronger than a comma, but not as final as a stop, right? A semicolon separates two related ideas of equal weight. Now, here's what I mean. The ascension takes place after the resurrection and appearances of Christ, but before Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church. So it's after the appearances of Jesus to the women at the tomb and to the disciples that are on the road to Emmaus, but it's before the dramatic story of the sweeping wind and the tongues of fire, and it's going to be fun to preach on that next week, and that's going to be fun. <laughs> Pentecost, love that Pentecost. It's before that story, though. So before the semicolon, you have Jesus as the main character in the story. After the semicolon, you have the Holy Spirit that is the main character, the Holy Spirit that animates the church and its mission to continue the work of Jesus. This strange story of the ascension 
of Jesus is the semicolon story. It's the pause between the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the church. The biggest question on the minds of the disciples at that time is, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? Is now the time when the kingdom of God will come, they ask. So 60 years later, Luke wrote the book of Acts, 60 years after the disciples, okay? So 60 years later, Luke wrote the book of Acts for a community that was wondering the same thing the disciples wondered. More than a generation had passed since the life and ministry of Jesus, and Jesus was gone. And still the question was unanswered, how long? We don't know when the kingdom of God that Jesus spoke about is coming. We don't know when there will be peace and justice that prevails across the world for all people. We have some glimpses, but we don't know when it will be fulfilled. We don't know when the shalom that we long for will become a reality. They didn't know then, and we don't know now. But here's the thing, unlike the disciples, we are not living in the semicolon time between the resurrection and the birth of the church. Neither was Luke's community, who were the intended hearers of this story, of this text. Pentecost had already happened, church had already been birthed, they'd already received power from the Holy Spirit, but apparently they were tempted to keep their eyes turned up to the heavens, to wait for Jesus to come swooping down, to take care of things. Luke is using this story to remind his community and to remind us that we're not living in the time of the semicolon. This is not a time to pause but a time to get our heads out of the clouds and embrace the power of the Holy Spirit that has been offered to us. The Holy Spirit is blowing through our lives. She's always been there, always been here. We acknowledged her presence in our lives at our baptism when we acknowledged and accepted the freedom and power God gives us to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. It's by the Holy Spirit that we have that power and freedom. So what Luke told his community and what God continues to tell us is that we don't have to wait for anything. The Holy Spirit has already given us the power to be witnesses Jesus said to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Now, let's be clear. Witnesses in the biblical text does not mean spectator. It's not like you're witnessing a football game or choose your favorite sport. It's not that kind of witness. To be a witness is to emulate the behavior of Christ, to proclaim the message of Christ boldly, 
The root word in Greek that we translate as witness can also be translated as martyr. I take that in for a moment. Witness comes from a root word in the original text that means martyr. When Jesus tells the disciples, you will be my witnesses, he's calling them and calling us to radical ministry, only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. When you think about it, the witnesses in the book of Acts, they gave their lives. Peter, Paul, Stephen, they each gave a radical witness. They were all martyrs. Y'all want to run yet? The time of the semicolon was that pause when Jesus told the disciples to devote themselves to prayer, to prepare themselves, to take on the role of being a witness to Christ. And hear this, the semicolon separates two related and equally powerful moments, the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the church, related and equally powerful. Jesus gave his life to a ministry that brought real change to the world, real hopeful change to the people he loved and to many more he didn't even know, to a leper he embraced, to the hemorrhaging woman that he healed to a child that he lifted up from her deathbed, to the paralytic he helped to walk, to the disciples with whom he shared bread. What I know is that Christ wants disciples like us to continue his ministry, to be his witnesses. Now, this is an interesting time to be part of the United Methodist Church. There's no question about that. We are in a time that we have never been in before. This is not like other times that the Methodist Church has dealt with issues that could cause separation. We're going to talk a lot more about this next Sunday at the meeting I hope you'll be able to be with us. Let me say again that our path is clear. We insist on full inclusion, but also we insist on the priority of grace over rules. We insist on the priority of theological reflection over dogma. We insist that we will keep our Wesleyan heritage. One thing we cannot do in this moment is lose our commitment to be witnesses in the world at the same time that we are moving towards a solution to our denominational crisis. We are called to be witnesses. In the words of Martin Luther, for God hath willed God's truth to triumph through us. 
Annie Dillard wrote a book called Holy the Firm. In it, she reminds us that we are no different than the folks in the Bible, and we are called to no less than they were called to. We live in the same awkward time they did, post-resurrection, pre-kingdom of God. So listen to her words. She says, a blur of romance clings to our notion about these people in the Bible, as though, of course, God should come to these simple folks, these Sunday school watercolor figures who are so purely themselves, while we, we are now complex and full at heart. We are busy. So I see now where they. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? There's no one but us. There's no one to send, nor a pure heart on the face of the earth, but only us. A generation comforting ourselves with the notion that we have come at an awkward time. But there's no one but us. Never has been. In the time of Jesus, there was no one but this small band of committed disciples, including women like Jesus' mother, In the time of Luke, there was no one but Luke's community. His community was not filled with people who were gifted with power and wealth, but they were inspired. They were inspired by the Spirit of God. If these common people had not chosen to be witnesses, we would not be here this morning. There was no one but them to continue the message of faith and hope. Today, there's no one but us to give witness to the truth of God's love and the power of that love to transform all that is wrong with the world. We are to be witnesses, even in this awkward time. I'm convinced that we can walk and chew gum at the same time, and I know you are too, and I don't mean to be light about this in any way, but I do want to call attention to the fact that we are, our hearts and our faith and our minds have to be on a broad witness in our community and in our church, and... Um, That's really important for us to keep that in mind over the coming weeks. For God hath willed God's truth to triumph through us, and may it be so. Thanks be to God. Receiving the offering, please come forward now.